Brilliant, great to see you this morning and uh, to, to be back with you guys. Um, I wonder how many of you have ever been to a graduation or an awards ceremony? Um, many of you ever been along to one of those? Yeah, a few of you. Um, it might have been a time when you were receiving an award and that would have been really special and fantastic. Or it might have been a time when you would go along to support a family friend or a, a you know, family member or a friend of yours when they were receiving an award. Even if you've not been to one to though, I can pretty much guarantee you'll have seen one, won't you? On TV. Maybe you've seen an award ceremony, you know, the, the BAFTAs or, uh, you know, the Oscars or whatever it is. Or maybe you've just watched a film and it's had, a, you know, one of those kind of high school graduation ceremonies and they're all there in cap and gown. And one of the things that you often see in these kind of ceremonies um, is that the people who come up give a little speech, don't they, when they get an award. And in, in America, um, particularly, um, you get the, the valedictorian, the top achiever in, in the year group, who will give a little speech um, uh, you know, when it is that they receive the award. And at one of the schools in Georgia, in America, um, a young man stood up and, and he gave this speech. And he stood up on the podium, and he started really well, and he started off by thanking the people who'd supported him, as you do, finished off by thanking his dad. Good place to, to kind of go. But then he went on and he said, my father taught me an important lesson. He told me throughout my entire life that I am the most important person in the world. And he went through the speech and he kept talking about how much this meant to him and how important it was to him and how it kind of shaped him and how true it was. And then he finished his speech and he he looked out at all of the students who were out there and he said to them, don't ever think there is anyone more important than you. Do what you want to do, not what other people want. Your happiness is all that matters. I don't know what you think about that statement. But one thing's for certain, this top achieving student had taken hold of this advice that he'd been given, that he was the most important person in the world, that his happiness was all that mattered, and he internalized it. And he made it his core value. He made it part of who he was and the way that he was going to live his life. You know, whatever goal he set out for himself, whatever he was trying to achieve, whatever he wanted his career to be, the way that he would go about trying to get there would be shaped by this core value, that he was all that mattered, that his happiness was all that mattered. and, And as a church over the last couple of months, we have set out something of our purpose, haven't we? Where it is that we are heading, what it is that our destination is, what it is that we're aiming for. And and I'm sure you all know it, but let's put it up on the screen and just remind ourselves. We exist to see God's love transform lives as we follow him. That's our shared purpose. It's our destination. It's what we're aiming for. It's what unites us together. But while we've got a shared purpose, if we all share the same kind of value as this top achiever had, and we think that we're the most important person in the world, And our happiness is all that matters. Or if we all have different values that shape us, then the reality is that our journey to that destination is going to be one that's full of conflict. People will get seriously hurt along the way. And in fact, the chances are we'll never reach that destination at all. You know, it's important as a church that we understand what we're here for, what our purpose is that we exist to see God's love transform lives as we follow him. But it's equally important that as we unite together behind that purpose, 
We have common values that shape us, that are godly values, biblical values. That's why we've spent, you know, we spent a few weeks talking about our purpose as a church, but we've gone on to this series looking at our core values, our family DNA, what it is that not only joins us in purpose, but joins us together relationally so that we head towards that destination in harmony. And this morning, we're going to continue to talk about one of our core values, what it means to love God's church. And the aspect of loving God's church, it should come up behind, again on the screen that we're going to focus on, is pretty much the exact opposite of the message that this top achiever had. You know, in contrast to going through life with a mindset that says, I'm the most important person in the world. My happiness is all that matters. Everything revolves around me. Our core value is something very different. If it can come up, that'd be great. One of our core values as we love God's church is to be self-sacrificial. And we explain that by saying self-sacrificial means generously giving ourselves away in every aspect of our lives for the sake of of others. And hopefully you would all look at that statement and you would say, yes, that's a good value to have. But while we might think it's a good value to have, I can't imagine that there are many of you who are sat here today who inside are jumping up and down with joy and saying, yay, we're going to have a talk on self-sacrifice! <laughs> you know, as much as we might say, yes, This is something of what it is to live God's way. And we know it's the best way to live. It's hard to live a self-sacrificial life, isn't it? Sacrifice hurts. And there's something inside every single one of us that doesn't like it. And wants to rise up to defend our rights. To defend our wants. And to defend our needs. And this morning, though, I don't want it to be about beating you up and making you feel bad for the fact that your heart's cry naturally is to say that I want this and I need this to look out for yourself. This morning, it's about calling us up together to recognize that God has something more for us. That contrary to what the world might tell you to think and contrary to what your own natural heart's cry might be, and try and persuade you that God's way of living, God's call to self-sacrificial living and pouring out our lives generously for the sake of others is the best possible way to live. It's not about us missing out on things that we want. It's about us having a, a bigger purpose and a bigger vision. And it's as we give ourselves to living in a a self-sacrificial way that we'll begin to experience greater freedom and step into more of what God has for us, both individually and as a church. The sacrifices we need to make to our own comfort as a church together, just as there are sacrifices that need to be made in our own lives individually, if we want to see God's love transform lives as we follow him. Well, let's have a look at something Paul writes to the church in Philippi that I think really captures what it means to self-sacrificially pour out our lives for the sake of others. We're going to read Philippians 2 verses 1 to 11 should pop up here so you can follow along as well. This is what Paul um, writes. Give it a second. Well, you've all got ears, you can listen. This is what Paul writes. says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort 
from his love. If any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And and then being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him, exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They're powerful verses, aren't they? Now one of the things though, that I think is significant in these verses is that Paul doesn't begin with this demand for self-sacrificial living, this demand to put other people first. He understands that actually that's not natural. That left to ourselves, that's not our default setting. You know, from the moment we're born, we naturally grasp after the things that we want. So the starting point for Paul is a recognition that before we can begin to put other people first and pour out our lives for the sake of others, we first need to have a life-transforming encounter with Jesus ourselves. And I'm not simply saying that, you know, you've recognized Jesus for who he is at some point in the past. Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, that is, if you have it right now, today, encouragement from being united with Christ, in this moment, You know, having accepted Jesus as your Savior and Lord in your life, are you encouraged? Encouraged right now by the truth that you're united with him, that you are in Christ and he is living in you. Encouraged by the fact that being united with Christ, God looks upon you and he sees you as holy and blameless, no matter how you might feel. Encouraged by the fact that having been united with Christ, you were adopted into God's family and you are a child of God. Does that give you encouragement? He goes on right now, today, in this moment, do you have any comfort from knowing God's love for you? Do you realize that the almighty creator of the universe loves you infinitely? That he delights over you with singing? That he cares about you and the tiniest details in your life? Does that give you comfort today to know that God loves you in this kind of an amazing way? And he goes on right now, today, in this moment, are you enjoying fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Do you know the Holy Spirit is with you, enabling you to have relationship with God and be united with Him? Do you know the Holy Spirit is with you, empowering you to live for Him and to fulfill God's purposes in your life? Are you enjoying The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is he guides you in every step that you take and helps you in the decisions that you need to make. You know, the starting point for Paul 
is that these things are in place. It's since these things are in place, since you've experienced God's amazing forgiveness, that you've been washed clean and given a fresh fresh start. Since you go on experiencing day in and day out God's love for you and his empowering of the Holy Spirit, enabling you to follow Jesus and live your life for him. Since that foundation is in place, since we are secure and we no longer need to worry or fear and try and grasp after things for ourselves because we can trust God, then we can live a self-sacrificial life, following the example of Jesus and putting others first. And Paul goes on to say, if this foundation is in place, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You know, as I've thought about Paul's statements there, I mean, there's so much in there, isn't there, you could begin to unpack. But as I've thought about Paul's statements there, I think it all comes down to what it is that you love. Is our greatest love for ourselves or is our greatest love for God and for others? It can just be boiled down to that simple question, to that simple way of looking at things. I don't know how many of you have ever seen um, the film A Knight's Tale. Just put your hand on you seen The Knight's Tale. Yeah, it's a little oldish film now, but I, I remember when it came out, really enjoying it. It's a film set in uh, medieval times, following a guy called Ulrich, a, a commoner who, who fakes um, kind of his credentials as a noble and goes off and enters jousting tournaments. And, and he gets pretty good at knocking people off a horse with a big stick. But along the way, he falls in love. And he falls in love with a lady called Jocelyn. And um, he, with the help of a friend, because he's not pretty good at this himself, but he has a friend who's a good writer. And with the help of his friend, he writes this beautiful poem to her and sends it off. And she's moved by this poem. And so they agree to meet. And they meet in a cathedral in Paris. And uh, why don't we watch what happens next? favorite cathedrals. I come for confession. And the glass. A riot of color in a dreary gray world. Don't you think? Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> I feel the same way about the letter you sent. <laughs> Speak to me. Speak those words. I'm going to win this tournament for you. It's 
Excuse me. But this tournament, I'll win it in your name. Every night I defeat, I defeat for you. The, your beauty will be reflected in the power of my arm, the flanks of my horse. Wow. Really? Yes. Really? It's flanks? Yes. I wish to hear poetry, Ulrich. Oh, well, not ready. But I am. And why must everything for a woman be run on a man's schedule? Well, a, a man's day is fuller. And, well, you see, a man, he has more demands on his time. Was that so? And, yes. Maybe. No. I demand poetry. And when I want it, and I want it now. Your breast. They're below your throat. Where... <laughs> Jocelyn, how may I prove my love to you? How? Do you ask in earnest? Yes. If you would prove your love... Right. You should do your worst. My worst? What do you mean? Instead of winning to honor me with your high reputation, I want you to act against your normal character and do badly. Do badly? Lose. No, losing proves nothing, except that I'm a loser. Wrong. Losing is a much keener test of your love. Oh. Losing would contradict your self-love, and losing would show your obedience to your lover and not to yourself. Really? Shh, woman. Do not shh me and spare him. Now be gone. Go! What is your answer? I will not lose. Then you do not love me. Jocelyn. He wanted to please her. He said, how can I prove my love to you? But his greatest love was for himself. He was motivated by his selfish ambition, by his vain conceit, by his pride. And despite his love for Jocelyn, he wasn't willing to sacrifice his reputation for her. He will not lose. Now, I don't want to spoil the end of the film, um, but he does go on to have a change of heart. All ends happily. The thing is that, that just as with, with Ulrich, any act of real love requires some level of self-sacrifice. Some level of prioritizing the other person above yourself. Let's have a look at, at 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. I'll try and show you what I mean. Paul writes, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always 
perseveres. Love never fails. I don't have time to go into every single one of those statements that we've read, but let's just pick out a couple of them. And as I say, I'll show you what I mean. So love is patient. Another way of putting it is love is long-suffering. You know, the reality is that all of us like trouble-free days, don't we? Yeah? And when we get unexpected interruptions or irritations come along, it can drive us mad. You know, there are times when I ask Evan to do something and we're in a rush or I'm tired and we're just trying to get him to bed quickly. And I just want him to do it straight away. And so I ask him, you know, just tidy up your your toys that are out. And if he doesn't drop what he's doing that split second and go and tidy those toys, then I can find myself snapping at him. Because I'm tired, I'm in a rush, and I want things to be done my way. He's not really done anything wrong. He was going to tidy up. He was just trying to finish his drawing or his game or whatever it is that he's doing. But in that moment, I had a greater love for myself and my desires than I had a love for him. For love to be patient requires us to sacrifice our desire for everything to go smoothly. For everything to go exactly how we want it to, without any delays or interruptions. And the reality is when it comes to loving one another, when it comes to being in relationship with one another, there will be times when it is inconvenient. There will be times when it interrupts our me time. There will be times when things don't go according to plan and people let us down. And to pour out our lives for one another in self-sacrificial love means we sacrifice our desire for everything to go the way that we want it to. And we're patient with one another. We're long-suffering. So love is patient. Love does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Just another way of Paul saying what he wrote to the church in Philippi, do nothing out of selfish ambition, that's kind of um, a spirit of rivalry, or do nothing out of vain conceit or a spirit of pride. You know, in your relationships, don't spend time comparing yourself with other people and trying to make sure you're coming out on top. You see, when we we find ourselves motivated by selfish ambition or vain conceit, what matters most is achieving more than other people and being better than other people and protecting our reputation so that other people don't think less of us. And the danger is that to achieve our goals, we'll be willing to step on anyone who gets in our way. We'd be enter into a mentality of winning no matter what the cost. We'll find that as we become motivated by protecting our reputation, we'll turn to usually one or two things, either turn to boasting and trying to project this great image of ourselves, or we'll turn to hiding and we'll protect ourselves by not standing out and avoiding being noticed. You know, when we're motivated by by pride, we'll find that in times of conflict, we'll become stubborn and unyielding because what matters most is that we're right and that we win. 
defending our position is the most important thing to us. And when that's the case, it messes up our relationships. Because it says, I'm right, I know what's best, and you can't tell me otherwise. Because it it says, I'm right, and I know what's best, and what matters more to me is being right in this matter than being right in our relationship. And when it becomes more important to us to be right than anything else, we become unyielding. And we become blind to the fact that we might be the ones who've got it wrong. And that makes relationships difficult because we can work with people and we can come alongside people when they get things wrong and they admit it. But when people get things wrong and they won't admit it, it's impossible. That means that to love people means self-sacrificially giving up your natural desire to always be right. Your natural desire to defend yourself and defend your reputation your natural desire to look good in front of people and be admired by people. It means giving up your natural desire to to protect yourself by hiding away and avoiding the risk of people looking down on you. You To be self-sacrificial means to love others and value your relationship with them. Value their needs more than you value your own reputation. The last statement about love that I'm just going to pull out is that love keeps no record of wrongs. I know that if, if we wanted to, each and every one of us could probably come up here and take the microphone and share some fairly horrific stories about wrongs which people have done to us about times when we've been hurt or offended by people. You know, there are opportunities to be hurt and offended every single day, aren't there? And in every single relationship. If you know someone, you're likely to have been offended by them. You know, the reality is that if we examine ourselves carefully, we all have certain um, expectations, require certain behaviors, of people that we're in relationship with. And I think particularly in church, we have even higher expectations of of the people that we're in relationship with. And because we've got such high expectations, there's an even higher potential for hurt and offense. An even higher potential that people will let us down. And the truth is that people will let you down. The reality is that without meaning to, I've probably let some of you down and caused hurt and offense. I'm really sorry if I've done that. You know, when someone hurts us, if we allow it, what will happen is that offense will begin to grow within us. A grudge will be formed within us. And because we're hurt, do you know what? It can feel good. How many of you know it can feel good to nurture a grudge and to imagine inside what it would be like if they got their comeuppance for what it is that they've done? Imagine inside, you know, being able to just bump into them into the street and just suddenly having the oratory skills of a politician and being able to lay into them with all the different ways that you've, they've hurt you and the pain that they've caused. To see it dawn on their face. It can feel good. It can feel justified. 
It can feel like somehow we're holding them to account for what it is that they've done to us. But you know, the trap of holding a grudge or holding on to an offense is one of the biggest weapons that the enemy can use to keep us small and ineffective. It paralyzes people and it breaks down relationships. It breaks down trust and it breaks down unity. It leads to judgment. It leads to a critical spirit. It leads to suspicion of people's motives. It leads to insecurity. And we are stuck in that trap if we don't spot it for what it really is. And you know what? Often we don't spot it because the enemy is really subtle. And he makes us believe that we're in the right, that we have a right to feel the way that we do because of what they've done to us. And we justify ourselves and we fortify our position. And we explain why it's perfectly reasonable to feel the way that we do. You know, there are, there are two types of offense. There's real offense where it hurts and it's painful and someone has done something that is very wrong. And there's perceived offense where actually you're not aware of all of the facts and you've filled in the gaps and you've, you've made um, assumptions and judgments and you've ended up in a place where you feel offended because you assume someone has done something for a certain motive when you don't really know. And it, but you know what? It doesn't matter if it's a perceived offense or a real offense. It's a real hurt. You know, and in these verses we, we read earlier, Paul said that as followers of Jesus, we are to have the same attitude as Jesus, that Jesus is our example that we're to imitate. You know, and if anyone had a right to be offended and to hold on to a grudge, it was Jesus. He'd done nothing wrong. He was completely innocent. And he was betrayed, falsely accused, unjustly judged, scourged, beaten, mocked, and left hanging naked and humiliated on a cross. And when he was hanging on the cross, Jesus was going through unimaginable physical, mental, and emotional agony. And what would you expect his cry to be then from the cross? He had every right to demand that people would be held to account for what it is that they had done. What would your cry be from the cross? Jesus' cry was, Father, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They don't know. In his moment of torment, Jesus is praying for those who are crucifying him. That's what it is to self-sacrificially pour out our lives for the sake of others. It means that even when people hurt us, when people let us down, we lay down our rights to offense. We forgive them. We desire good for them. You know, to be self-sacrificial in our relationships is to be willing to lay down our right to judge others and to hold them to account. Whatever the offense, whether it's real or perceived, Whoever it is that's hurt you, you need to let it go. One of the things that we lose in the English translation of Jesus' prayer for forgiveness is that the idea conveyed isn't just of Jesus being on the cross and praying once, Father, forgive them. 
But actually, the, the, what it is that it, that it conveys is the idea of Jesus being on the cross continually praying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And how many of you know that letting go of hurt, letting go of offense and forgiving someone isn't something that happens instantly? You know, when we realize that we're carrying a grudge or an offense towards someone, the first thing that we need to do is to speak out forgiveness. And it might seem a little bit hollow and empty at first, but it's what we need to do to make that decision, to choose to do it as an act of the will, even if we don't feel it. But the important thing is that we don't leave it as hollow forgiveness. Sometimes I think it can be easy to think, well, I've made that decision to forgive them. I've, I've spoken it out. I've said that I've forgiven them. And so we just move on. We kind of close the door to it. We shut away the hurt that we're feeling and we just move on. But actually what that's doing is repressing the hurt that you still feel. And you end up with this grudge growing inside of you. You need to know that just because you've said that you forgive someone, you're not necessarily done yet. You need to keep forgiving them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them until it doesn't hurt anymore. Until it doesn't hurt when you see them walking down the street. Until it doesn't hurt when you, you hear them laugh in the corner. Until it doesn't hurt when you hear good things about them. Because you just want to be critical and pull them down. And it's when you get to that point that you know that you've begun to overcome the offense and to really forgive. It's not that what someone has, has done to you is not a big deal. The fact that you've been hurt by it and it is staying with you and causing you so much torment shows that it is a big deal. And it's not that it will be easy already said sacrifice is never easy it's hard and it's painful but it's the only way to freedom you know when we hold on to offense and our desire to hold a person to account it causes a barrier in our relationship with God and it causes a bitterness to grow inside of us um, I don't know if any of you remember, a couple of years ago, um, there was an article in the paper about a, a 68-year-old man um, called Alan Greaves, um, who was a church organist. And he was walking, he was going to a church in Sheffield, he was walking along the street on his way to midnight mass on Christmas Eve, and he was beaten to death. Um, a random act of violence by some, some young men that were out at the time. And it was obviously an absolutely horrific time for his wife. But since then, his wife Maureen has gone on record as having been able to forgive her husband's killers. And, and this is what she wrote. She said, it seems so easy to say I've forgiven. But it's probably one of the hardest things in my life that I've had to do. And yet having done it and seeking repeatedly to do it, I found that I've benefited. I've not gone to bed with them in my mind. I've not gone around with shocking feelings over them. I've not gone over and over in my mind every day the replay of what happened to Alan. You see, Maureen realized that not only was she commanded to forgive just as God had forgiven her, but actually she needed to forgive for herself. 
that it was hard enough and bad enough and painful enough losing her husband without also being trapped in the torment that unforgiveness causes. I'm not in any way wanting to minimize how hard it is to forgive and, you know, when bad things happen to us. You know, what happened to, to Alan was horrific. What people did to Jesus on the cross was horrific. Jesus didn't try and minimize what happened to him on the cross, and God doesn't want to minimize what it is that you have been through either. But God's call on us is that just as he has self-sacrificially given himself so that we might be forgiven, that we would self-sacrificially give up our right to hold people to account and that we would forgive them. That we wouldn't put ourselves in God's place as judge and we would leave the justice to him. There's so much that we could talk about when it comes to to forgiveness, so much we could talk about when it comes to self-sacrificially giving ourselves and pouring out our lives for others. But essentially, it's about growing in love. Growing in love for God. Growing in love for others. So that our love for others is greater than our love for ourselves. That's what it all comes down to. Because when we love others more than we love ourselves, when we love God more than we love ourselves, we're more than happy to pay the sacrifice. We're going to come to a, a time of communion now, and if the band want to come up, that'd be great. And as we, as we do, I want us to focus ourselves again on Jesus. To focus ourselves on the one who is our example. The one who loved us so much that he put you first, me first. He put us first. He put our needs first. And self-sacrificially poured out his life for you and for me. So that we could be forgiven. You know, the one who did not try and hold on to his rights as God, did not try and hold on to his rights to enjoy being God and have that comfort in heaven, but was willing to give it all up and become a servant. Who loved you and me and valued our lives so highly that he was willing to suffer not just the pain of death but the humiliation of the cross for each one of us strongly as you've all seen it um, um, a palm tree and this palm tree was really being blown but instead of breaking it bent and it bent with the wind and went with the wind. And I felt the Lord was saying that that's what we need to do. Um, we need to bend under the Holy Spirit rather than to break. Thank you, Amanda. You know, it's so important that we begin in this place of focusing on Jesus so that that's possible. Because as I said at the beginning, it is not natural to self-sacrificially put others first. It's not natural to not want to hold one another to account. We will break if we try and do it on our own. But if we come to Jesus first, we allow his forgiveness to wash over us, his love to wash over us, we become secure in him. He will enable us to bend.